Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. Before I read the text, let me start a time in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for uh, this time where we can um, hear your word. Lord, help us all um, be humbled and have a soft heartedness to your word. Teach us what you want us to know through the working of your spirit in our life. And Lord, if there are any even non-believers here, uh, that you will work in their hearts through the message, uh, convict them of sins in their life um, for all of us, whether believers or non-believers, in hopes that we would that it will bring up um, upon repentance, uh, so that we can um, love you and to delight you um, each and every single day. Lord, thank you for your word again, and may we be may we have attentive ears during this time. We thank you, your son's name. Amen. Revelation chapter two, verse eighteen twenty nine. I want to read this, and then we'll get into the lesson. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I'll throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Now kill her children with pestilence and, uh, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in thy terror, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will and he shall rule them with the rod of iron, as the vessels of the pots of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In 1861, one of the biggest threats to the Australians was not a fire or even the Australian people or koala bears, uh, but the biggest threats in 1861 were rabbits. Uh, there was a man, was an Englishman by the name of Thomas Austin. He um, was a hunter, uh, he, well, he does that as a hobby. And when he went to Australia, he thought it would be fun to um, you know, keep his hobby going. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to be a, a terrible marksman after being gone from England. So he decided to bring rabbits with him to this trip. And uh, he had a, a whole field, uh, he had a whole backyard, a home and everything. He decided uh, that he's just going to release these 24 rabbits that he brought over in his backyard, thinking that he just, you know, uh, you know he just hunt them in his own backyard. Uh, little did he know, a few of them escaped. And what happened is that the rabbits, you know what rabbits will usually do, they multiply and they multiply and they multiply. And uh, rabbits, although we think they're cute and cuddly, which they are, they were a huge threat to that environment because they ate 
everything that humans ate. Um, and, they, and because of how fast they multiplied, it was hard for them to um, catch them all and kill them all. And even animals that were there, like, okay, the predators are thinking, like, how do we eat these little guys? Because there's so many of them. It was like a buffet for everything, uh, which is funny to think about when you think if, you know, they did, if they did not contain the situation, that the entire continent would be destroyed by a bunch of rabbits. Uh, they spent 10 years trying to figure out how to deal with this. And at one point, they killed 2 million rabbits. And it did not even cause a dent in it because the more that they killed them, the more they discovered there's so many of them. And uh, at one point, they were the fastest uh, growing rabbits in all the whole world. Uh, and they needed a way to prevent them from spreading. There was an infestation of rabbits. Um, and then when this infestation started, and if you think of Australia, they were, it started off on the east side, and they were afraid that it would spread all the way to the west. So they decided, um, okay, we need to build a giant fence, not a wall, because the rabbits don't need to jump that high. It's basically just like a little speed bump. Um, but the reason why they wanted to prevent that from happening is because the west side of Australia had, that's where most of the crop was. And if the rabbits were able to get all the to the other side, then they, they would lose all their, you know, all the farms and everything. So they, they started working on this wall and then, or this fence. Uh, and, and if you know anything about rabbits, uh, again, they can't jump that high. They're not like, you know, Bugs Bunny. They're not going to leap like a thousand feet in the air to the other side. So they just made these little um, fences, but it was very deep because rabbits can dig deep and those they, they want to make it deep enough so that when they dig through um at, at lower they, they realize oh i can't dig through this so they'll just look for somewhere else and uh it took them a while to come up with this idea and then when they did they realized that it didn't work because once they were built as they finished this fence they looked over to the west side they realized there was just some bunnies jumping out around over there like oh no what happened and uh one of the people that were working on them working on this just basically stated the obvious and that is that they were already on the west side there was in life we understand that if anything grows to the critical mass is it will take a lot more effort, radical effort to stop this from growing and we understand that that's actually how sin works in our life as well if sin grows to critical mass it is deadly and it is nearly impossible to stop sin it's very dangerous. As Christians, we understand that. It was just one sin that caused the destruction of all of humanity. So we need to take sin seriously. And this church, Thyatira, did not take sin seriously. They fell into great sin. We, we talked about Ephesus a few weeks ago. This was the loveless church. They had all of these abilities and all of this knowledge, but they lacked the love of, of to the Lord. Smyrna, they were the persecuted church. They, they, they had nothing wrong with them. They just needed to endure the tribulations. Last week, we, we learned about Pergamum. This was the compromising church. This was a church that uh, tolerated sin, and they did not uh, repent. Or they, God threatened them that they don't repent, that there's going to be punishments. But this church, Thyatira, this is known as a sinful church. This is a church that that accepted sin openly and knowing uh, that the, what, they're, what they have is wrong. And Jesus is rebuking them for their sin. In fact, the first commandment that Jesus ever said to the church, or there was the concept of the church, was in Matthew 18 about church discipline. And if you think back at that time, when Jesus was telling about church discipline, the church did not, wasn't established yet. Remember, the uh, church established in the book of Acts. So uh, Matthew 18, there's still some time in between. So you have to wonder, the apostles here, what do you mean, 
we had to kick them out of the church. What do you mean tell to the elders? Like it wasn't, it was a somewhat foreign concept to them, but when uh, the Christ died, resurrected, and then taught them some more, everything clicked. They realized that everything that was said before was that was referring to this body of believers, the, the, the church, um, and God's bride is, is supposed to be holy. Uh, that's what the whole point of church discipline is. It's supposed to keep the church pure. It's supposed to keep them away from sin. Thyatira here is, um, this is the longest letter that is written by Jesus to than any other churches here in the first, in chapter two and chapter three of Revelation. And this church is, it, it absorbed the sin of the culture and completely disregard holiness and they tolerated sin. Uh, the section actually from here until the rest of chapter three begins as, begins a, a like a different category of churches. Uh, these last several churches are very evil. Um, the evils of the world have become part of the church and uh, they have a, and they have this deep love for the things of sin. Uh, they stop loving and longing for the Lord as a whole. I mean, there's still some remnants, I'm sure. Um, but as a whole, the church was known by their sin and they start loving the world and loving, the thing, and loving their own sin instead of loving Christ. This is the longest letter into the smallest city. Uh, this is uh, Thyatiros was was like in between uh, Smyrna, no, sorry, in between Sardis and Pergamum. Uh, they were kind of like a gateway between the two. They were like a military gate. I, I, before joining us, I heard some of you guys talk about Jollibee and you know Daily City is a Filipino place, whatever, all that. But if you ever drive on any part of the border of Daily City, they'll say Daily City as, as the the portal to the peninsula or the portal to, to San Francisco or the gateway to um, San Francisco or whatever. The idea that this that daily city is known as the in-between between two cities or two parts of the Bay Area. That's what Thyatira is. They're not known for anything particular, but um, they were just known as being a border between two places. Um, but what they were eventually be known for, aside from anything like major, like you know, they weren't known for like intellect uh, or they're not, they weren't known for like, like um, having like a library the way Pergamum was or, or like the beauty of Ephesus or anything like that. But eventually they were known for their purple dye. Uh, in Acts 16 verse 14, it tells us that Lydia uh, was from Thyatira and she was a t seller of purple dye. Um, again, this, this city had uh, false gods in it, but it wasn't, um, as popular as, as you know, as like Zeus or or all the other Greek and Roman gods, um, but at some point the Lord rescued uh, certain individuals in the city, and they became a church. And uh, and that was we see this in Acts chapter nineteen. But one of the things that was in the Thyatira culture was that when you work, they infused pagan religion with the work. Um, they said that like you know if you work, you're also worshiping this other god and you know similar to the way we think of sf you know sf we have a lot of career-minded people and then we have a lot of business here and sometimes people idolize their work they they think that this company is like uh, the most influential company in the entire world and some of them in some sense it is uh, some of you work on these companies I'm not, I'm not making fun of you or the company but i'm just saying that the sometimes the attitude that people have about the job that they have is that they almost worship them like a deity they enslave themselves they devote their time energy and everything they have to the job and that's exactly similarly to what the people in Thyatira was. They saw their work uh, as almost like an idol. And, uh, and again, we see that this church tolerated sin. Um, 
to the fullest extent. They were living in sinful patterns that uh, were marked by non-Christians, and but yet this church fell as a whole. Uh, again, if, uh, when I was reading through Texas, there was in, it's implied that there are still a few faithful individuals there, and there was a warning to, for them and encouragement to them as well. The woman, there was a, uh, there was a. Um, there was a woman here that we see is Jezebel that brought immorality into the church. And this false teaching came from one person. All it took was just one person to mess up this entire church. Uh, they compromised morally. Again, uh, as we're looking through this book, I want us to not to think so much about other churches or even the SFBC as a whole. I want you to think about your own individual, individual walk. Uh, these churches are you know, real churches that happened in real life. There were real places, had real elders, real congregations, real problems. And at the end of each of these letters, that the, they, those who have ears, let them hear. It's not just speaking to them, but the reader as well. That's why um, me, myself and every preacher, when they ever, whenever, whenever they preach through this, they, they can use this as an as a, you know, application for us or to look at or use as a mirror for us, because I think that it's speaking to all the churches from all time but this was one real church in the past. If you remember the outline from all the other weeks, it's a similar one, it's gonna be the church's strength, the church's weakness, and the church's response. So this, so we're gonna start with that Thyatira's strength. Thyatira's, Thyatira's strength, it's like a tongue twister. That should be a little game. Uh, Thyatira's strength, verse 18 to 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, in chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, it explains this imagery. And I, I didn't get to it, um, but in chapter 1, it actually describes each of these attributes of God, and each of them are, appears in different places in chapter 2 and 3. Uh, so chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it explains that his head uh, and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze when it was made uh, when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like a sound of many waters. And all these attributes will eventually appear throughout the book of Revelation. But this time it's used here. Uh, and the reason why that is, is because it's supposed to show you that um, this is Jesus seeing everything. This idea that he has, he has, um, he has eyes like a, like a flame of fire. He, he knows. And this is a scary thing because uh, one of the things that we have to realize that we must never forget is that God sees all of us. He is the omniscient God. He sees everything. He's in all places. Everything is before him. There's nothing that's a surprise to him. There's nothing that's hidden uh, from him. You can't hide sin from the Lord. He sees their sin. He sees them. He knows their secret and he's coming for them. And he said that uh, and the reason why he's, he's, he's described this way is because he doesn't tolerate sin. Jesus knows his people. He knows his flock. And he knows that um, that uh, they are in sin. And this is his, his feet are like a burnished bronze. And this idea he's coming toward them as in a, in a threat in a, in a very intimidating way. Uh, and they're supposed to anticipate his return. Those that are believers also uh, joyfully anticipate that. But uh, for those that are living in sin, it's supposed to cause them terror so that they would repent. But notice that their strength is this. Uh, Jesus says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are, are greater than at first. These are all different attributes of the church that are actually good. Um, he said that they're love. This church has some sort of love for um, people. Uh, they, 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 ha they have what Ephesus did not. They have this love for others. 
um, uh, and it, on the surface, they also seem like they have this love for God. And even here, it says it has faith. And again, this church seems to believe the right things. Um, there was this unwavering devotion to truth. And notice it also describes service. This church worked really hard for the Lord, and they worked hard for other people. And they also persevered. This church endured persecution for Jesus. And this is their strength. That's a good thing. Jesus knows. He sees them. He's acknowledging these things that they're good at. Uh, their strength is to is a lot um, is, is is great. It shows that they have a strong ministry and that they're doing very well. And at the end of this verse, it says that they are actually um, that their their deeds of late are greater than the first. The implication is that they're actually their ministries as a whole is better. So their evangelism is more. Um, it's more articulate. They're, they're better at uh, presenting the gospel or defending the faith. Uh, they, were get, they were getting better at serving one another and meeting the needs. They had all the structural things in place in the church that everything just ran so smoothly. Uh, they just were getting better and better as a church. But then that, it, it kind of stops there because their good works are eclipsed by their weakness, which gets to our second point, Thyatira's weakness. Verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrifice of idols or two idols. This church tolerated this woman preacher uh, and then before you jump and say, hey, that's very sexist. What's wrong with a woman preacher? The reason it's wrong is basically because the Bible says so. Uh, this isn't to say that women can't be uh, teachers in the outside of the church context or you know, be CEOs or anything like that. We see this in First Timothy. But since this is God's church, that means that there's will operate off God's rule. But this church um, compromised. They allowed this woman preacher to come in and, uh, and this lady start teaching them things that are contrary to sound doctrine. And the danger of this church is that, is that their compromise already began even before she started teaching. Uh, they just, the fact that they let her, uh, lead is a show that, um, that, the, that they've compromised in small areas. And you have to understand that big sin always begins with small compromises, um, in the church as a whole, uh, the, that's how uh, compromise work. You know, when we say that the church drifts uh, to the left and it becomes more liberal, it always begins with some sort of um, uh, teacher that they allow or, or teaching that they did not stop, false teaching that they did not stop. And historically, whenever there are women pastors in church, gradually the whole church as a whole will drift towards uh, liberalism where they deny all of scripture. That's just a general pattern. I'm not saying that every church is like that. I'm saying that's just a general pattern of egalitarian churches. This lady is known as Jezebel, and Jezebel is a name that I don't think I've, I've never met anyone named Jezebel, um, because Jezebel and ha has like a has a connotation of wickedness. And uh, this is, uh, I don't think this lady's name is actually Jezebel. I think uh, this was just a symbol. Uh, Christ is trying to use this as an image so that people remember uh, how wicked Jezebel was. Jezebel appeared in Second Kings. Uh, she was this uh, Old Testament queen that married Ahab and she was a worship, she was a Baal worshiper and she made the entire nation of Israel worship a bail by doing sec, uh, acts of sexual immorality. Um, and even said that when there were a group of people that finally had enough, they were following the Lord, uh, they decided to throw her off a window, throw her out a window, and she landed and the horses trample over her. And they realized, hey, we need to get this, this lady out of the land. But when they went back, there was all they found was a skull, her, the palm of her hand and her feet. 
um, because they said that the dogs ate everything. Uh, and this is also a fulfillment of prophecy that God is going to destroy those false teachers. And God is saying here that this lady, the way that she acts, the way that she led the people astray is exactly uh, like Jezebel, that she's this wicked lady and these people tolerated her and her teaching. And she calls herself a prophetess and preacher. Uh, and, and again, she claims to be a teacher of the Lord. She claims to know Jesus. And, but the things that she taught uh, were, it was anything um, but that. And, you know, Colossians chapter two tells us that don't be persuaded by some, by persuasion of speech. Like you have to be mindful and discerning. And these people were probably swayed that way. They, they lacked the discernment, maybe because of a persuasive uh, language and the way that she presented herself. Yet in verse 21, Jesus says this about her and to her, I gave her time to repent as she does not want to repent of her immorality. This is amazing to think that even though this lady is wicked, even this lady is causing people to stumble, Christ is giving her an opportunity to repent. This should show you the grace of our God. God does not delight in the, in the destruction of the wicked. He wants them to repent. But if they don't repent, then God will pour out his judgment on them. And we, we have to think this about ourselves as well. One of the, the, the fears that I have with us as a church or even reformed churches is that we abuse the grace of God. We become people that think, oh, well, we're, we have assurance of salvation. We're, we're once saved, always saved. We're not going to leave the faith. Christ is not going to let us go. And then, the, and then because of that, those type of thinking, though those things are true, we tolerate sin in our life. We think we're never going to fall away, so then we're just going to keep falling into sin. That we don't make act, uh, we don't, we're not proactive, and we don't take radical measures to, to cut out sin in our life. Many people will think, and I'm sure some of the people here as well, they think that they can live in sin as they profess the name of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that today and right now, God is still giving you grace and time to repent because God is indeed a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He doesn't want people to, repent, to die without repentance to him. It says here in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and she those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. This is very strong language here. Uh, Christ is saying that, if, okay, if you don't want to repent, here's what's going to happen to you. God said, he'll throw her into his bed. And this idea is that like, okay, I'll put you in a position that like, you can just, it's almost like Romans 1. I'll give you over to your sin. And anyone that commits adultery with you, you will be killed. Um, you'll be destroyed. And that's what it says in Verse 23, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. Again, this is Jesus making a threat. And I don't think children here is like literal children like Jezebel had, like little kids. I think when we think of children here in this context, it's just the followers, right? Jesus called the Pharisees a like child of the devil, um, and we're, as Christians, known as the child of God, and that's because our allegiance and our devotion is to whoever we worship. And uh, these people, these followers that, that um, bought into the lie of Jezebel, um, God is saying that he will kill them. Uh, people will die because of their sin, and even First John tells us that there's, a, there's some sins that are just going to lead to death, and we don't know exactly what that is, uh, but I think sometimes people forget that God is a God that, he, that, that threatens you and he actually acts on it. Um, I remember, I think I've shared, I might've shared this with some of you, but I remember when I was in college and there was a guy in our Bible study that um, his parents went to Grace Church and I remember talking with him, trying to get to know him. And he said like, yeah, I'm totally a Christian because my parents went to Grace Church. And um, 
And my shepherd was like, dude, this guy is weird. Make sure he doesn't talk to any of the ladies and um, you know, make sure that he's a, uh, he, they, you know, he's, a, he's a threat to the Bible site. So he can come, but just make sure that he's in his place and doesn't do anything weird. And my shepherd on that Sunday, I remember just, he was saying like, hey, he's, he gave him ultimatums. Like either you repent of your sins uh, or uh, you come to our Bible site. But if you come, you're not allowed to talk to anyone younger than you. You can only talk to all the leaders and all those small group leaders and all that. And he said, okay, I'm fine, whatever. I don't want to have anything to do with this Bible study. And he invited him again to try to you know, share the gospel with him. He told him like, hey, uh, I don't believe in Christianity. He answered every single one of his questions. He was still living in sin. His parents kicked him out. You know, this, this family at Grace kicked him out of the house. And, uh, and eventually, like a week after that, they found his body in LA. It was like very, you know, not safe part of LA that he was strangled to death and he's just living in his own sin. He, he, he did whatever he wanted. His family kicked him out. He didn't want to be part of church and his behavior and his lifestyle brought him to his own demise. Now I'm not saying that it will happen to all of us, but you can't assume that it won't happen because you know, and the book of Acts, we see Ananias and Sapphira, they, they presume that they can hide things from the Lord. They presume that they could hide their sin and this is what led them to death. And even in the old Testament, and, uh, uh, we see that people that, that fail to worship God appropriately was killed by the Lord. And I think because we don't see that often in our life, that we don't take God's threat seriously. Uh, but God, he may not destroy you in this life, or he may uh, be gracious to you and giving and being merciful to you, but that doesn't mean that your sin is, is, going, is gone without his notice. And I would think that we need to, again, evaluate our own heart because God hates sin. And many churches at that time even now are living in sin and God is willing to make an example of them. God is willing to destroy a, a, a person's reputation. He's willing to humble them if it means to bring them to a state of repentance or just to show to everyone else that if you live like this person, this is what's going to happen to you. And we see this in a few weeks ago when that Hillsong pastor was caught in adultery. He's this mega pastor. He was like, um, he had all these followers. He was like with all these celebrities and everything. And he was caught in adultery. He was just fired. Uh, this is someone that assumed that, okay, if I can just uh, just do whatever I want, if I can just do things in the name of God, I can live how I lived. And when we see a pastor fall, especially one of those famous pastor fall, we should not be judging him like, ha this guy is a loser. We have to realize that that can be us as well, that we may not have the same uh, impact or people watching us, but there are still people watching us and people that we're influencing. Um, and if we fail to... Uh, uphold a life of godliness, we will bring shame uh, to the Lord with, with whatever people is in our life. God hates sin, and churches can't be indifferent to sin. Both uh, again, churches can't be indifferent to both sin and living in sin. You notice that Jesus here says that He searches the heart and mind. This again goes back to the fact that He's omniscient; He knows all things. What's interesting is that uh, it didn't seem that they have like it didn't seem that they have good doctrine, even though they have faith and all the things that's listed, like faith and service and perseverance. The problem, even though they have all these good things, is, is sin, that they tolerated sin. Uh, this is a dangerous thing. How would you respond if Jesus pointed this out in your life? You have to understand when we do church discipline or when someone confronts you on sin, it is not because they're being judgmental. It is not because um, they're trying to control your life. When someone in, your, in, in the church confronts you on sin, it's because they love you. And it's the Lord uh, using this individual as a means of his grace in your life to confront you of your sin. And you have to see, like, 
and I know some people will say things like this, like, well, Jesus knows my heart. And that's a danger. Like, yeah, exactly. Jesus knows your heart. And you really want to live like that. He knows how wicked you are. Some people think that just because Jesus knows our heart, that we are somehow, uh, that somehow we, that's a good thing. But we have to understand that in Matthew chapter 7, there are many people that, that Jesus said that there are many who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? And God will say, depart from me for I never knew you. Anytime when there's someone that confronts sin in your life, it's because they don't want you to, to live a life a certain way. So when you get to that day, that God denies you for not knowing him. And people here, when we confront one another, it's because we love them. Out of a love for one another, we are willing to point out sin in each other's lives. A person can externally seem to love God or seem to have faith or seem to serve God and even seemingly persevere under persecution. But all of those things can be fake. All of those things can be fake. The one thing that you cannot fake is a genuine love for Jesus. God can see right through you and he knows you. Jesus sees all that you are. How then can we handle this? How do we balance the two? If like our, if love, faith, and service perseverance doesn't matter, then what are we supposed to do with that? If Jesus says that a person can't do things to obtain salvation, then how can I know that my life is pleasing to the Lord? Well, it's, that's a good question. And the answer is just don't compromise. Jesus isn't saying that if you do these things that you're going to obtain salvation. But if you think that ministry is somehow going to mask your sin or going to make your uh, own hand clean in the, eyes of, in the eyes of the Lord, then you are wrong. You can do all these things, and, but it should be out of a love for the Lord. Um, external ministry doesn't give you a pass to hide sin, to hide any secret sin. The, the people here tolerated sin in themselves and in other people. And Jesus sees those things. He tries to expose those things so that you know that you are in sin. Again, don't assume uh, that just because there's a fruitful ministry. Remember, it says here, uh, going back to verse 19, it says that the deeds of late are greater than at first. Don't assume that just because there's fruit in the ministry that you're in means that you have spiritual fruit in your life. Don't assume that just because the ministry is thriving that your spiritual life is actually thriving as well. This is a call for us to be mindful of our sin. Thyatire's strength is they have faith, they have service, they have perseverance, and uh, they have uh, and their deeds are better than before. But their weakness is that they tolerate a sin in their life. Now, what is their response? What are they supposed to do with all of this? Which brings us to our last point: Thyatire's response. We see this from verse 24 to the end of the chapter, or end of, yeah, the end of the chapter. Verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Now imagine the faith it takes to abstain from sin in the context of the church. You know, there's sometimes churches that tolerate sin, and you are there struggling whether or not this is a place that I want to continue serving or you want to leave. And these people in Thyatira were faithful. Like these were faithful members. They, there was all the sin going on. They don't hold to the teaching. I'm sure they're even trying to confront these individuals and they're being persecuted for. It. And Jesus is saying, uh, I'm not going to add any other burden to you. Just endure. Uh, there are some people uh, that try to confront sin and they were faithful and then no one is, uh, is responding. It's like, it just seems like they were like a vocal minority calling out people to repent and then the majority of them did not want to. You think it'll be safe. If you, th you think, you, we all might think that just because we're in the context of the church that somehow we're safe from 
the temptation and the, and the allurement of sin. And that's not true. Sometimes the most ungodly influence in your life are people in the church. Some of the most ungodly influence in your life are people that are in the church. Again, I'm making reference still like in my own personal life to seeing like all of these pastors that fall. And I'm asking this not because I don't think I'm prone, like I don't think I'm immune to it. It's because I know I can fall if I'm not mindful of my own walk. And then you know, I ask all of you in church and you pray for all your elders that we are above reproach. Uh, but there are churches where the leaders are wicked leaders and they're still in that position. Um, and that, that's the unfortunate thing. And sometimes you need to be discerning and just because, and think just because that person is a pastor, that person is just a ministry leader, doesn't mean that I need to model everything that they do. Um, yes, we need to model godly leaders, but they're living a life of compromise, living a life of sin. You need to be able to discern that and not follow them. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. Like, if you, you guys don't hold to these teaching, that's good. I place no other burden on you. Verse 5, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Some resisted the compromise and others gave in to sin. God gave, gives a promise of protection to those who hold fast to him and not make any opportunity to sin. This is here, what you have, hold fast. His nearness and coming is supposed to be incentive to live holy lives. God is always drawing, is always nearer than we expect, both in terms of a historical context and that like we, at any moment Christ can return, God, there's an imminence in that sense. But at the same time, God is also close to us because he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. He, he's always around us. We're never truly alone in that sense. Um, he's telling us to hold fast to the faith by not letting him go. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. Um, flee from sin and cling to Christ. Verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give him authority over the nations. Verse 27, he shall rule uh, them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. These two are, again, promises of of, of heaven. Um, this response of faithfulness gives you heavenly rewards and you get eternal life. You get to reign with Christ when we put to death the reign of sin in our own life. This is a reference to Psalm chapter 2, verse 89, where it is promised that one day when Christ rules, we'll rule with him. Um, and again, this is promised that there's going to be victory from, uh, you know, that Christ can have uh, absolute victory in the, on this world. And you see them chapter 1, Verse six of Revelation, and he made and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God uh, and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter twelve, verse five of Revelation, it says the same thing. And she gave, uh, yeah, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod. And her child was caught up to the God and to his throne. This is a reference to the Messiah coming and. Um, even at the very end of Revelation, Revelation 19, verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to your God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard something like a voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the mighty reigns. We have to understand that our, our Savior, he's going to reign on this on earth. And 
Roger spoke on this a few weeks ago on, on Sunday morning. He talked a little bit about the kingdom. And we also have a message on that, I think a year or two back, about the kingdom of God. This is a real kingdom that God is going to establish here on earth, and we're going to reign with him. How that looks like, there's going to be little details, and you can study that on your own. But the point is that there's a promise that we will be with him forever, and that we'll reign with him. Verse 27 tells us that, uh, that we'll join Jesus, as he overcomes the nations of those worlds, this, you notice this phrase, rod of iron, is from Psalm 2, is this idea of this rigorous rule, that there is no tolerance of sin, there will be no sin at all, uh, no one be, will be able to overthrow Jesus, no one will be able to elect Jesus out of office. When he reigns, he's going to rule with, uh, with, uh, with an, a rod of iron, and that's a good thing, because Jesus is a good God. Um, you know, it ends, it ends this portion here, it's broken to pieces, and um, it's this idea that things will be shattered and uh, nothing will be left because Jesus is going to have victory. He's going to have absolute victory, and we're going to reign with him. That, but we will only reign with him if we turn from our sin, if we flee from our sin, um, because sin makes us desire things of this world and wants us to stay here, and the Lord's going to destroy everything that is of this world. So it's a warning and, and in a lot of ways, even encouragement for those to stay and live holy lives and not to live in compromise. Verse 28, now give him the morning star. A lot of debate on what this morning star is. And I land, um, to think, I believe that this is Jesus himself, that he's saying he's going to give himself to them. Because in Revelation 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus promises them that if they, if they overcome sin, if he promises us too, if we overcome sin in our life, that we will have him. Christ has to be precious to us if we want to um, abhor sin in our life. We can't expect to love God and sin at the same time. I know that there are going to be momentary times when we fall into sin. And you have to look at those moments in life as a small moment of not loving God the way that you're supposed to. But I trust that as you continue to grow in your love for the Lord, that love will continue to endure and it will, and it will protect you from sin. Um, what the love of God is supposed to control us. It compels us to live a life of godliness. You can't cherish the things of heaven if you love the things of this world. You can't claim to cherish Jesus if you love and, and, and is protecting your own sin. The promise of being with the Messiah in his kingdom should compel us to live holy lives in this kingdom, in this fallen, broken world. We should strive to live as if we're from another kingdom, in which we are. We're not of this world. Do you see Jesus as your greatest resistance to any type of sin, to any type of idol worship? Do you delight in Jesus more than the sin that's in your life? Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, he's he wants the people to give he wants to give special attention to his words. He wants them to know to not to be overcome by compromise or uh, or be ruled by sin in your life. Going back to that Australia thing, eventually, you know, they saw you know all the bunnies were all over the place, and they they need to figure out a way to to like get rid of all of them. Uh, so what they actually did to stop them was essentially biological warfare with the rabbits. Uh, they figured out a way to kind of poison every single rabbit as much as they can, and it, and it worked. And it may seem like these are radical steps, and it's like crazy how, how, what they will do to, to keep themselves from being destroyed by a bunch of rabbits. But we have to understand that is true. 
that we want sometimes in life, if we want to solve um, expression in sin, we do need to take radical steps. Some radical steps are going to keep us from destroying our lives because of sin. This is what Jesus talks about. Jesus talks about in uh, how if you truly, uh, if, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Your feet causes you to go to sin, cut it off. It's better to lose a body part than, uh, than to have your whole body thrown into hell. It's better to enter into heaven with missing limbs than to go to hell with all your entire body. And that should be something that we need to think about as well. Don't hold on to sin. How far are you willing to go to keep sin in your life? You need to keep the good of the church, things like faith and service, love. These things are good, but you need to also be able to turn away and, and, and cut sin out of your life. Take radical steps so that you can live holy lives. Not because you think that, um, you know, not because the works that you do saves you, but because you truly are saved. That's why you want to do these things. Now we have to ask, are we like this church? in the good and the bad. Are we this church to have all these services and all these good things, but do we tolerate sin as well? And if we allow sin in our life, then there is a threat from the Lord that we are going to be, we're going to be destroyed for it. But there's also a promise that if we overcome sin in our life, that we'll be with him, we will reign with him forever. And that should be our driving force to live a life that is holy and pleasing to him in this fallen world. Let's close our time in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word again. Lord, we don't want to compromise. We don't want to be known by, by, our, by this dual reality of doing all these good things for you on the surface, but in our hearts of harboring uh, sin. Lord, I hope and ask that you can um, reveal sin in our life and that we confess it to you. Um, that we ask you um, that we don't, don't become callous of it. We know that uh, we need to kill sin before it kills us. And it's a war that is, is sadly going to be until we see you, Lord, and we, we know we're going to see you. We know that you're going to come back, and we hope that when we see you, that we'll be received by you because of the love that we have for you and, and even you working in our hearts. Lord, there are some of here that think that they can hide, um, that they can hide from you. Lord, may you convict them as well. Um, may you make them see the errors of their way uh, so that they can repent and come to true repentance, Lord. Thank you for uh, this time that we have, and may you guard our hearts and minds this weekend um, as we uh, go about just uh, living life and even enjoying uh, possibly time of fellowship in person with other people. Thank you for this opportunity we have to hear your word. Praise you in your son's name. Amen.